Hello and welcome back to Nerd Roamer. This is your host, The Cross, and as always, this is the podcast where we reveal the hidden history and science behind the places you travel. We believe that we're all in this together and that the world is just a big field trip we're all taking together. We want to be an audio guide for you for the world around you. Learn more about the world you explore. Deep dives for long drives. This is Nerd Roamer, Rome Wisely. If you're just joining us, this is part two of two of our Red Tide Rising series on the New Jersey Shore shark attacks of 1916. If you have not listened to part one yet, I encourage you to stop this podcast right now, save it, put a little pin in it, stick it under your cap for later, whatever you want to do, and go back and listen to part one right now, because that's going to make this episode make a whole lot more sense, unless you just love being confused. And if that's the case, then you do you. This is America. You can do what you want. But getting into our second episode here, I'm just going to give you a brief recap, and then we're going to jump right into it. So if you remember from our last episode, we were looking at the 1916 New Jersey Shore shark attacks. 1916, if you remember, was a horrific year. Terribly hot, heat wave, killing lots of people. Polio epidemic, ravaging New York, killing lots of people and driving them to the beach. And then in New Jersey, you start seeing these shark attacks. So our first victim, Charles Van Sant, died while wading in shallow water on July 1st near a beach in Beach Haven, New Jersey which is on the southern shore near Atlantic City. Our second victim dies on July 6th. He's attacked by a shark while swimming farther north along the New Jersey coast. His name was Charles Bruder. And then finally we get to the horrific day of July 12th, in which the Brackish Creek, Madawin Creek, sees three different shark attacks, the first of which near Madawin Village is Lester Stillwell, an impoverished boy of 11 with epilepsy, followed by Stanley Fisher, the young tailor working in town who jumped into the creek in an effort to save Lester. And then finally, we saw Joseph Dunn get attacked by the shark. He was the young boy visiting from New York to escape the polio epidemic, who was attacked by a shark about a half mile downstream from Madawin Village. And he wound up surviving after a nine-week hospital stay during which they did surgery to salvage his leg. So at this point, you might be wondering the same thing that the people in New Jersey were wondering at the time. What the heck is going on? Why are we being terrorized by this shark? The Northeast had literally never had a recorded shark attack prior to this time, and now we've got five over the course of 12 days. There were numerous theories for the different attacks. So for one, let's think about the Van Zandt attack. This guy's wading in the shore just off the beach. People at the time theorized because they didn't believe that sharks would want to attack a human or could attack a human on purpose. People theorized that the shark had been trying to attack his dog and had bit him by mistake. Another theory stated that they felt like the shark was kind of marooned and stuck in the shallow water and was starved and desperate and was snapping at anything passing by. It was inconceivable to people at the time that a shark could attack a human just in an unprovoked fashion for no reason whatsoever. The story seemed so irrelevant at first that the articles on Van Zandt's attack were very short and they were buried deep in the newspapers. But after the Bruder attack, the idea of a man-eating shark on the loose captivated the nation's attention and articles for the Bruder attack and the subsequent attacks splashed across headlines top of the fold on some of the biggest newspapers across the country. Following the Bruder attack, an emergency talk by a group of biologists reassured the public that 
activities like sunbathing and going to the beach would still be perfectly safe. It's not as if the sharks had grown legs and crawled up on the land. And that there was no danger whatsoever to swimming in any sort of netted off public beach. Even outside of these protected areas, they stressed, the possibility of another shark attack was still considered low because we had not seen many shark attacks in the past. The probability of having yet another shark attack was considered to be low. Nevertheless, after the second attack, seaside resort tourism plummeted. So while the people of Madeline undoubtedly thought it was not possible for a shark to be in their little creek before it happened, they still would have been familiar with the general shark hysteria that had begun sweeping the New York and New Jersey area in the first and second weeks of July 1916. Patrols up and down the coast looked to spot sharks. And the public at this time started flooding officials with their theories. So I'm going to share some of these theories with you. One gentleman wrote in to say that, quote, Scientists believe it's most unlikely that a shark was actually responsible for these attacks, and lots of people believe it much more likely that the attack was made by a sea turtle. Scientists have spent much time at sea and along the shore, and have several times seen turtles large enough to inflict just such wounds as were seen on Mr. Van Zandt. These creatures are of a vicious disposition, and when annoyed are extremely dangerous to approach. And it's a common theory that Bruder may have disturbed one while it was asleep on or close to the surface while he was swimming. Another theory postulated that in the carnage of World War I, you've got these German U-boats, the submarines, that had been sinking ships all around the North Atlantic. And every time they'd sink a ship, it'd fill the sea with the bodies of the crew on board. And that the sharks had tasted this human flesh. And that they'd developed an association of U-boats with food and with the taste of human flesh, and that they had followed U-boats into American waters. Basically, the idea that Germany had created these killer man-hungry sharks that were now on the prowl and looking for human meat. A third popular theory postulated that some rogue shark had swum up from the Caribbean and was working its way north, and it was predicted that it would strike Long Island next. Finally, one forensic examiner looked at the wounds and was absolutely convinced that the bite marks were from an orca and not from a shark. If one shark attack was an anomaly and two shark attacks were concerning, then the third, fourth, and fifth attacks occurring on the same day on July 12th clearly indicated that there was a problem, right? So, of course, one would expect the townsfolk of Madawan and the people of New Jersey to have a well-reasoned, strategic approach to evaluating and combating the threat posed by the shark. Naturally, the next response would be to dynamite the ever-loving snot out of the creek. The people of Madawin cordoned off the end of the creek from the sea and went up and down the length of it, blasting with dynamite and raking the water with gun glass. This resulted in some quite literal muddying of the waters, as well as a good amount of dead fish, which I will point out is an ideal shark attractant if there ever was one. But no shark was killed in this process. The July 12th attacks sparked a national outcry that went straight to the president himself, Woodrow Wilson, who declared that the U.S. was at war with sharks. So if you thought the war on drugs sounded unwinnable, here we are entering into a war on sharks, and most of us don't even know how to swim that well. Woodrow Wilson dispatched Coast Guard cutters to track down and kill as many sharks as possible off of the New Jersey shore. Towns from Madawan on down the coast of New Jersey offered rewards for sharks, some of them into the thousands of dollars in today's money. More and more beaches enclosed their waters with nets, and many gave their lifeguards high-powered firearms. 
Thomas Cottrell, our hero from Act 1, if you remember right, even got in on the action, trapping a sandbar shark in a gill net at the mouth of Madawin Creek. It was not big enough to be the likely offender in terms of shark attacks. He was still trying to do his part. This guy is really an overachiever in this story, if you ask me. A breakthrough would occur just two days after the Madawin Creek attacks on July 14th. Now, I'm going to preface this just by putting this out there. To me, there are a few things about this whole account that seem a little fishy. Okay, there's a little bit of a pun. But there are a few things here that to me seem a little bit fishy, but I have not been able to find any sort of reliable source that actually questions the veracity of this person's claims. And there are multiple accounts that seem to confirm the story that you're about to hear. So here goes. And I want you to let me know what you think. Feel free to comment on Instagram or Twitter or email us at nerdroamer at gmail.com to share your thoughts and your take on this story. But I'm just going to throw this out there. Michael Schleiser and his fishing companion, John Murphy of Brooklyn, New York, headed out into Raritan Bay, supposedly looking for some small fish to eat. Raritan Bay is the bay that's bordered by Staten Island to the north, New Jersey, including the Madawin Creek area to the south, and Sandy Hook to the east. So this is the bay that Madawin Creek drains into. This guy, Michael Schleiser and John Murphy, head out to do some fishing. They go out in this little skiff. It's like a little dinghy, not a very big boat. And they're just dragging along this like six foot net, just trying to catch some little, I don't know, tilapia or some little fish that they can eat for lunch or maybe sell at some sort of market or something. I don't know. Michael Schleiser is kind of an interesting dude. So he earlier in his life worked for Barnum and Bailey Circus as a lion trainer before he moved on to a career as a noted big game hunter and America's foremost taxidermist, which is something that I think you don't see a lot of five-year-olds like write down on their career aspirations list in kindergarten. But this guy was America's foremost taxidermist and he was headquartered in Harlem. Supposedly, as they were climbing in this little dinghy in the harbor, he saw a broken oar sitting on the dock, and he picked it up, tossed it into the dinghy, and John Murphy asked him, why'd you do that? Why are you throwing garbage in our boat? He replied, hey, you never know when having an odd piece of scrap like that around would come in handy. They trawled from just off Staten Island to the north, down toward the Madawin Creek area. When they were just about four miles off of Madawin Creek's outlet out in the bay, The boat jerked to a halt, and they started getting dragged backwards. The bow or front of the boat started rising into the air, and the rear sank, getting dangerously close to becoming swamped in the back. Schleiser was immediately concerned that they had trapped a large creature like a shark. As the two men looked for a weapon frantically, the shark turned and flung itself forward upon the stern of the boat, so it jumps into the boat, basically, and starts thrashing violently. Schleiser picked up the broken oar, and took a swing at the shark. Miss. The shark headbutted him in the arm with force sufficient enough to crush his wrist. With his other hand, Schleiser swung again and connected with the shark's nose, stunning it slightly. This gave him the opportunity to repeatedly beat the daylights out of this thing until it eventually expired and sank into their net. They brought it back to harbor, and upon further inspection, the shark was determined to be a juvenile, female great white shark roughly seven and a half feet in length and 350 pounds it was probably about two years old much smaller than the typical adult great white and much much smaller than the largest sizes that they can attain which can be up to around 20 feet in length and over two tons in weight being a taxidermist hey 
taxidermist gonna taxidermy, yo. So Schleiser brought the shark back to his shop, and in preparing it for mounting, he opened its stomach to find remains that he thought looked mammalian, but they were in such bad condition, they were, he described them as being about three quarters of a crate full of human remains, so probably like 15 pounds of remains. And he takes these remains and sends them off to the American Museum of Natural History, where naturalist Dr. Fred Lucas examined the bones and determined that he felt they were of human origin. Okay, so you've got this shark that's about the right size with these supposedly human remains in it. Schleiser finishes mounting the shark, and it wound up hanging in his shop for the remainder of his career. And unfortunately, it's now since been kind of lost to entropy, decay, obscurity. No one knows where the shark went. But I'm sure it brought in a lot of business for him as a taxidermist for the rest of his career. Now, I hope some of you can understand some of my skepticism. What are the chances you've got America's foremost taxidermist and a big game hunter and former circus worker who would be someone you would think would be familiar with kind of chicanery and the importance of publicity and some flair for the dramatic accidentally catches a shark in a tiny little net meant for a little fish for which there are these huge rewards and high amount of public interest. He does it in this like really dramatic fashion, like somehow defeating it in hand-to-hand combat as it leaps into his boat and seemingly can't even confine its capacity for causing terror to the water anymore. It's got to leap on its boat to attack it. And it just so happens to have a small amount of difficult-to-identify remains in it that are chewed up and partially digested, but are eventually declared to be probably human. And then this guy, who's like this big taxidermist, is able to hang this thing in his shop as a publicity stunt for the rest of his career. So that's where some of my skepticism comes from. That all being said, the facts do seem to fit. I mean, his buddy, John Murphy, corroborated his account. Multiple people on the dock saw the shark. This was the director of the American Natural History Museum who was examining these remains. It wasn't like some schlub off the street. So it seems like a lot of things do point to this story being true. It just seems fishy and shady. And this is one of the reasons I love this whole story because this is really like a plot straight out of Hollywood, and you cannot make this kind of stuff up. So you have the fact that you have a shark that's a variety of shark that's known to attack people, that's about the right size, that's found with these supposed human remains in it, seems to indicate that a great white, or this great white, was responsible for at least one of the attacks. But unfortunately, we're probably never going to know for sure exactly what type of sharks were responsible for the New Jersey shark attacks of 1916. We don't know for sure if it was one quote-unquote rogue shark or if there were multiple sharks. We don't know if it was multiple sharks, if it was all one species, or if it was different species. There are a lot of theories out there. There are three main kind of man-eating species of sharks that tend to have encounters with humans close to shore. And one species, the oceanic white-tipped shark, that pose a greater threat should humans encounter it in the open ocean, say if you fall off your cruise ship or something like that at sea. It's terrifying to think about, but actually a lot of people that are lost at sea probably wind up getting eaten by these oceanic white tips rather than drowning, because that's where they tend to hang out. For a reference, see the experience of the crew of the USS Indianapolis, as described by Captain Quint in the movie Jaws, as we referenced in the previous episode. The three shark species that frequently have run-ins with humans close to shore are the tiger shark, the bull shark, and the great white shark. The tiger shark is like a swimming garbage can. 
Its propensity for curiosity and putting a wide variety of objects in its mouth, combined with its tendency to inhabit harbors, bays, and coastal areas frequented by humans, makes it a common shark bite perpetrator. However, it tends to be in warmer waters than those of New Jersey or New York. It's most frequently seen in the Bahamas, Hawaii, Florida, those kind of places. The bull shark is an intriguing possibility for these attacks. Bull sharks average about 7.5 feet long, about 300 pounds, and they frequent waters close to the coast. They can be found farther north than the tiger shark, as far north as Massachusetts and New England. They're a leading cause of shark bites as they prefer to hunt in murky water, where visibility is low and distinguishing humans from typical prey is difficult. They're also very cranky sharks and have a very low threshold for provocation. A defining characteristic of bull sharks is that they are able and often tend to enter fresh bodies of water. They are known to swim up rivers quite a long distance. For example, they've been noted to swim as far up the Mississippi River as Illinois. Think about that is terrifying. You could be in St. Louis and jump in the river and get attacked by a bull shark. That is scary. And there have been recorded attacks from bull sharks in rivers around the world particularly in the Ganges River in India, where people will go down to bathe in the Ganges and get attacked by a bull shark. Super, super scary. Definitely seems to possibly fit that pattern of attacking someone in Madawin Creek. The third species that's responsible for the largest number of shark bites, and scientists sometimes prefer the term shark bite to shark attack because it's usually a reflex from the shark, and it's not necessarily that you have this like psychopathic shark that's going out and attacking people. The common terminology that most lay people will use is still shark attack, so I digress. The great white shark is the classic shark that you think of when you're thinking about bites on humans. It's the biggest of the sharks we're discussing here. While the great white has the largest number of unprovoked attacks recorded on humans, it is not actually always clear that the identifying information is correct, and it's really, really difficult to determine the species of shark responsible for a given attack. Okay? So great whites probably get a bad rap and they get blamed for some attacks that are actually due to other sharks just because people are so familiar with great whites. And that's the first type of shark that comes to mind. Great whites seem to be the least interested in humans of the three sharks mentioned. And they don't consider humans to be really very tasty at all. While they might bite humans somewhat frequently, Great white attacks seem to be about half as fatal as tiger or bull shark attacks on a percentage basis because great whites are often giving a test bite and then they'll leave the human afterwards. Some have postulated, and this is probably because we humans, we're just too darn bony and we just don't have the same fat content as the seals that the white sharks are used to eating. It's thought that probably consuming humans would actually, we would be not very healthy for them because they need a more energy-efficient snack. They need something that's really fatty and less bony that's going to be easier for them to digest. Other people assert that the attacks are brief because humans are oftentimes in the water together and that if you're being bitten by a shark, it's very likely that you've got a friend there who's beating the shark on the nose or something like that so that it goes away, which to a shark is super odd behavior in a prey creature right? Seals don't do that. It's not like seabirds that they're eating off the surface are going to fight back like that. And so this kind of freaks them out and they go away. Evidence supporting this is that sometimes if 
someone is alone when they're attacked by a shark, they might be more likely to be partially consumed. Rather than shark bite victims who are in a group tend to only have a single solitary bite and then are brought to medical attention. In any case, most people who die from great white attacks do so because the initial bite somehow managed to sever a large artery just by dumb luck, not because they're necessarily completely consumed. Great whites definitely tend to spend most of their time in saline water as opposed to the bull sharks. One interesting aspect of the 1916 case is that on the day of the Madawin attacks, July 12th, it was a full moon, and the tides that day would have been very large, and the creek at that time would have been twice as saline as it is normally, and would have probably had a similar salinity to the ocean. So the water composition would have basically just been like muddy ocean water, really making it possible for it to be either a bull shark or a great white shark. Finally, all the direct evidence that we have does point to a white shark being responsible for at least some of the attacks. For example, witnesses do estimate that the shark is 8 to 9 feet in length at both the Van Sant and the Madawin attacks, which is the same size as the shark that Schleiser catches that has human remains in it. Although it must be noted that a full-size bull shark would also be about the same size. We will probably just never know whether the shark caught by Schleiser was a rogue, man-eating great white that was responsible for all five attacks, or if maybe the oceanic attacks were due to great whites and the creek attacks were due to a bull shark, or if there is some other combination of the above or all bull sharks, no one knows. The sky is the limit. What we do know is that the most likely main driving force behind the attacks was a drastic increase in the number of people in the water that summer. The beginning of the 20th century was the first time that ocean swimming had truly started gaining in popularity, and things like bathing suits and beach resorts were still a novelty. They were all the rage in 1916. In subsequent years, the number of beachgoers has only gone up, and it has consistently been linked to the number of shark bites. It's purely a numbers game. With more humans in the water, you get more human-shark interactions. In the years since 1916, an increase in the number and variety of water sports has led to a steady increase in shark encounters. Most human-shark interactions occur close to shore, probably because that's mostly where humans are in the water. Board sports, such as surfing or boogie boarding, seem to be the most prevalent in shark attack roles, though swimming, wading, snorkeling, and scuba diving are all also represented. For years, people speculated that board sports were more dangerous because the silhouette of a human on a board kind of looks like a seal to sharks. You've probably seen this graphic at some point, where you see the legs and the arms of a person splayed out from the surfboard, silhouetted above, and then they show you a seal silhouette next to it, and it looks kind of similar. But in all actuality, the reason why people participating in board sports probably tend to be attacked more frequently is that when you're doing those activities, you're seeking out rough, surfy water that tends to be really murky with poor visibility from surf pounding the shoreline. If you fish at all, you will know that fishing surf can be very productive because the conditions can be really great for fishing in that you get this stirred up sediment that draws in these schools of fish. And then from a shark attack perspective, those schools of fish draw in prey fish, they draw in seals, eventually that draws in the apex predators like the sharks. Good surf conditions are also good feeding conditions for sharks in a lot of cases. The recipe is you add more sharks into water with poor visibility, and as soon as you add humans, human bites are going to increase. It's just inevitable. 
The public was understandably pretty rattled by the 1916 shark attacks. The shark entered the national consciousness as a symbol of ferocity at this time. Sharks began to be used as symbols of different military units during World War II, for example. The 20th century would initially see shark calls in which large numbers of sharks were killed off as a strategy for preventing shark attacks. You see this already in 1916 with Woodrow Wilson ordering America's war on sharks to begin. Particularly, this was worst in Hawaii, where hundreds of thousands of dollars were poured into killing thousands of tiger sharks. And the net effect of that was, interestingly, no reduction in attacks. Eventually, sharks became threatened due to hunting, a decrease in their food supply, and habitat loss. Later on in the 20th century, people began to realize their importance in the food chain in maintaining the ocean ecosystem and the balance of fish, which many people around the world rely on for food. And it was at this point that conservation measures were enacted to protect them. They began to be understood more as Hooper, the character in Jaws, sees them, as eating machines, doing what they're meant to do, and not as vengeful, rogue killing machines. Today, there are numerous methods used for reducing shark attacks. These include some benign methods like netted barriers around swimming areas in shark-prone waters, as well as shark spotters on the beaches, shark spotters in the helicopters, and in recent years, even using drones to spot sharks. Researchers have looked into shark repellents, both sense and sonar devices for repelling sharks from areas where humans are in the water. But there are some controversial methods for shark attack prevention that are still used today, and these include shark gill nets and drum lines. Shark nets are used in a way similar to the culling strategy above, with the idea being fewer sharks, fewer attacks. But rather than wholesale killing sharks, they're deployed in a more targeted fashion nearer to swim beaches, with the idea being that the nets, which are designed to only catch 6 foot plus sharks, will cull sharks venturing near the human area while leaving other animals alone. The problem with the shark nets is that there's a great deal of bycatch. So you wind up catching sea turtles in them. They wind up killing dolphins. They wind up killing other marine mammals and endangered species. And it's also inherently destructive to the sharks, as it's a by-definition lethal way of dealing with them. Drum lines are another method for shark control that are deployed near swimming areas. Drum lines are basically just baited shark traps. They're said to reduce shark attacks by over 90% when deployed in this targeted way. But there is a real but still prevalent bycatch issue. And again, there's the issue that you're killing sharks in order to protect the bathers rather than just keeping them apart. A new generation of drum lines has been introduced called smart drum lines that supposedly catch the shark alive so that it can be released a long distance away. Ostensibly, this should be more conservation friendly but we'll have to see if it becomes widely adopted, as capturing sharks and relocating them is surely more trouble and expense for a country's officials than just killing them right off. And now we get to the part of this podcast where I feel kind of bad. Jaws, a top five favorite movie of mine, and incidentally not based at all on the 1916 New Jersey attacks, although this is often widely reported. As fantastic as Jaws is for its classic John Williams dramatic score, brooding suspense, that famous dolly zoom shot, the great performance of Robert Shaw as Quint talking about his experiences on the Indianapolis. Jaws is unfortunately not above reproach here. The film so sparked terror in audiences that there were reports of viewers entering a state of nervous catatonia after seeing the film. 
The so-called Jaws effect led to empty beaches across America in 1975. In fact, after first seeing the movie as a child, I was afraid to go in the deep end of the pool for months, and I was convinced every time a weed touched me in the lakes of northern Minnesota that I was being dragged down to the depths by a great white shark. It's absolutely terrifying. Very effective movie. After the film's release, shark fishing tournaments exploded in popularity, with the population of sharks of all varieties plummeting across the world's oceans. Commercial fishing has also exacerbated the issue greatly, including directly fishing for sharks to get ingredients for shark fin soup, to bycatch when fishing for other species, senselessly killing sharks and dumping them back into the water. Today, roughly a third of all shark species are threatened or endangered. The worldwide population of great whites, though not exactly known, probably only numbers a few thousand across all of the world's oceans. Think about how vast the oceans are. That is just not very many. The fact that many sharks take longer to reach sexual maturity than humans do, yes, that's right, sometimes they don't go through puberty until they're more than 20 years old. They live very long lives, but sometimes have a very, very small amount of offspring during those lives. So they're very, very sensitive to declines in their population. They just don't reproduce quickly enough to bounce back. In fact, after learning more about the nature of sharks, how they're just apex predators who attack humans by mistake, and after seeing the world's shark population plummet following the release of his book and the movie Jaws, author Peter Benchley once said that he never would have written the book if he would have known how magnificent and misunderstood sharks are. If you want to learn more about shark biology, shark attacks, and get involved in conservation, I've got some resources for you. The International Shark Attack file has loads of information and statistics on shark bites, shark biology, and conservation background info. Oceana is a general marine conservation agency, but is the largest agency dedicated exclusively to protecting oceans, and protecting sharks is a big part of what they do. Finally, the Shark Research Institute is dedicated specifically to shark conservation, and is great if you're looking for programs that are designed for both children and adults to get involved. You can't save the sharks on your own. You're going to need a bigger boat. Thank you all for your time today. You know I just could not leave you without some sort of knowledge nugget to accompany this episode. You want some fries with that knowledge nugget? Last episode we talked about shark biology trivia. This episode I'll tell you just a little bit about what you can do to reduce the possibility of getting attacked by a shark if you're visiting the ocean. These tips are directly from the International Shark Attack file, and just like in our grizzly bear episode, the best thing you can do is contact some sort of park official, naturalist, or lifeguard in the area you're visiting to know more about shark activity in the area and which areas are more safe than others. So I'm just going to dive right in here, and we're going to tackle the big thorny one right off the bat. Menstruation. I don't know why this always comes up with animal attacks. It's like people are obsessed with whether or not this is a problem or not. It came up during our grizzly bear episode when we established that it probably was not a factor at all in grizzly bear attacks. But the picture is a little bit more gray when it comes to shark attacks. So I'm just going to start you off with a couple facts here. Fact number one. Any amount of blood in the water can attract sharks. The tiniest drop of blood, even diluted in seawater can attract sharks. That's just a fact. Kind of a scary fact, but that's a fact. Another fact for you. 80% of shark attack victims are male. 
Many scientists think that the water pressure of being in the water provides enough tamponading force to prevent any sort of menstrual blood flow from getting into the water when you're swimming, at least temporarily while you're in the water. And there have been no attacks confirmed in the history of sharks confirmed because of menstruation or menstrual bleeding. That being said, you have to weigh your own risk tolerance and proceed accordingly. And there is no official recommendation from any governing body here. You just have to proceed with caution and use your own judgment. All right, moving on to some of our more general use tips. Number one, swim with a buddy. The larger the group of people and the more tightly you're gathered while you're out in the water, the less likely you are to be picked off by a shark. They're going to be looking for those kind of loner, weakling animals that are separated from the group. Second, you're going to want to stay close to shore and avoid drop-offs. A lot of these tips are very similar to the tips that one would use if you were looking to catch fish while fishing, but you're doing it in reverse. You're trying to do the opposite. So drop-offs are usually a place where you're going to find a lot of fish. You're going to find a lot of predator fish because it's this transition between two habitat zones and they're cruising there for food. So avoiding drop-offs will help. Similarly, fish do tend to like to feed a lot, and this includes sharks at dawn or dusk and in murky water. And so in addition to the fact that that's when they like to feed and where they like to feed, it's also a time of the day or a type of water where they're going to have trouble identifying you from their normal food. So avoid low light conditions, avoid murky water. Avoid river mouths, like anywhere where a river is dumping into the ocean is prime shark territory. Number four, don't swim around any schools of fish or where you see people fishing. If people are trying to catch fish there, then there's a possibility that there's a fish that might be trying to catch you there. A tip here is that if you see a lot of seabirds diving in a particular area, they're not looking for pearls, man. They're looking for fish. And the other thing that's going to be looking for fish is going to be sharks. So you want to stay away from diving seabirds, stay away from schools of fish that you see. Avoid wearing jewelry or brightly colored clothing. The flash and the sparkle of the jewelry, highly contrasted, brightly colored clothing, you're just making yourself look like a fishing lure at that point. I mean, literally, that is what you look like. And you are going to draw the attention of some of these predator fish if you dress like that. So you want to avoid wearing sparkly jewelry. Avoid wearing brightly colored clothes. It even says on the Shark Attack File website, they recommend covering up any brightly uneven tan lines is enough contrast to attract a shark's attention. So be very, very conservative that way. Point number six, remember those organs that the sharks have, the sensory organs, the ampullae of Lorenzini from the last episode? Those detect motion and splashing and that kind of thing. They're meant to detect struggling fish in the water. You can think of them that way. Well, if you're doing a lot of excess splashing, you're going to be attracting the sharks to you because they're going to be interested in checking that out. So they recommend avoiding excess splashing. They recommend avoiding swimming with your pet because they're going to be more likely to swim awkwardly and attract a shark. Finally, as we mentioned with the menstruation, any sort of bleeding can attract a shark. So if you have an open wound where you're bleeding in the water, you should really get out of the water and not be where a shark can attack you until that wound is healing over and you're not like trailing blood in the water anymore. Most important tip is do not enter the water if there is known shark activity. If you see a shark, don't try to touch it and get out of the water as quickly as possible. Now, 
you might do all of this correctly, and I've seen one shark expert say, the only thing that determines whether or not you're going to be attacked by a shark is purely your time in the water. The more time you spend in the water over the course of your life, the more likely you are to be attacked by a shark. Just like more people in the water equals more shark attacks, more time in the water equals more likely to be attacked by a shark at some point. If you are attacked by a shark, you have got to be proactive. This is not the time to play dead. This is not like some other animals where they say you need to play dead or act non-threatening because otherwise you'll trigger its predatory response. Its predatory response comes pre-triggered. So if you're attacked by a shark, you've got to fight back. Hitting the shark on the nose, the nose is very sensitive. That's where those sensory organs are located. You want to do that ideally with an inanimate object so you can really get some force going. And that will usually result in the shark curtailing the attack and swimming away at least temporarily. That's when you need to just try to get away, get out of there. Because the shark may come back and the more times you have to hit the shark, it becomes desensitized to you hitting it and you start to get tired. And so it's going to get less effective the longer you're beating the shark. So you want to get that one real good pop in and then get out of there if possible. If the shark has latched onto you and the beating and hitting it on the nose hasn't worked, that's when you've got to just start doing whatever it is in your power to drive that shark off of you. That includes, you've got to like claw at its eyes, like you got to try to dig your fingernails into its eyes, pull at its gills, the gills are really, really sensitive, and you should not act passively. You've got to claw at every possible sensitive spot, and many, many people are actually able to curtail shark attacks by fighting back and then getting the medical attention. The mortality rate of shark attacks has dropped from 50% earlier in the 20th century to less than 7% now. People are able to seek medical attention faster, and a lot of people have also heard this advice about fighting back against the shark. In any case, I hope none of you get attacked by a shark. I hope none of you get any viral infections. I hope everybody stays safe out there, and I want to thank you so much for listening to our podcast. If you liked what you heard, please, please, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think. It really helps us out. Definitely. Follow us on your podcast app of choice so that you're aware of new episodes as they pop up. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at NerdRomer. And check out our website at NerdRomer.com for show notes, summaries, as well as extra bonus content that we just couldn't fit in the episodes. If you have thoughts or questions on an episode or an idea for a future episode, definitely hit us up with some listener mail. You can direct message us on Twitter or Instagram or email us at NerdRomer at gmail.com. We really look forward to hearing from you. And in the meantime, again, keep staying safe out there and roam wisely, my nerds. We wish you all the very best.